So, Jay, what's up with Storm these days? Well, Miles, she's been pretty busy since the founding of Krakoa. For a while, she was a pirate. Nice. And she served on the ruling Quiet Council. Yeah, okay, unsurprising. But these days, she's busy being the regent of... Krakoa, right? The planet Mars. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 375 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And this time we will indeed be explaining the X-Men. In this sea of spin-offs and miniseries, it's kind of nice just to get back to the core team every once in a while. To what extent the core team is what we'll be covering? I guess that's true, because that's the thing. We are currently between crossovers. Onslaught is over-ish, and Operation Zero Tolerance, despite Graydon Creed's recent assassination, hasn't yet spun up to be a full event. And so, the issues around this era, stuff is certainly happening, but it almost feels like the issues themselves are annual or X-Men Unlimited stories. Like, they're mostly little side bits and pieces. Yeah, at this point we're not seeing the big interlocking major plot lines the way that Claremont was building them. What we're mainly seeing are big stories and events, and then sort of the breathing room between them. They're kind of coming one at a time. Yeah, and of course, you know, Bastion still shows up every ten minutes in, like, single-page interludes or whatever, but still, not events. Right, I'm not saying there's not foreshadowing, just that it's not really interwoven in as smoothly and as much on an ongoing basis as it had been. Although for real, comparing any editorial era to when it was mostly Claremont and Louise Simonson almost seems a little unfair. They just worked so, so tightly together, and everything felt so natural and organic, even if it mostly was probably Claremont not knowing what to write and Louise Simonson saying, hey, you remember that one plot line you left dangling three years ago? I'm not criticizing, but I do think that the difference in story pacing and and revelation is is important to to note as we're talking about these books you know and and the unique characteristics of each era oh yeah very much so like this era feels so so mid 90s so normally we would do our previously on x-men or the equivalent segment but with the stuff we're covering today i don't know jay i was thinking it would make more sense just to kind of talk about the relevant continuity as we went so what we're really looking at is previously in X-Men Unlimited number 7, which we covered previously in episode 277, Hedgehogs of Cairo. Yeah, that was a story by Howard Mackey and John Romita Jr., and for the record, I remembered covering it way more recently than that because, of course, in this modern era, time is utterly and completely broken. But no, it's been almost two years. You know, it occurs to me, I think we're actually covering comics in something vaguely resembling real time in terms of how frequently they came out at this point. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know. I feel like we're still lingering behind somewhat. Perhaps, perhaps. Well, it's all right. They'll cancel a bunch of X-Books pretty soon, and then we can speed up. Oh, but all the miniseries. Ugh, accursed miniseries. Actually, miniseries are generally great. I like most of them. An embarrassment of miniseries. What is the collective noun for miniseries? Uh, let's see. An exploitation of miniseries. A line of miniseries? That just makes it sound like you could snort them. You don't? 
Oh, have I been reading them wrong? I mean, look, I'm just saying, there's there's no wrong way to enjoy your comics. <laughs> Fair point. Maybe. But anyway, X-Men Unlimited, number seven. So that was a story where Storm, accompanied by Gambit and Jean, headed back to Cairo, where she had been a thief as a child, because Ahmed El-Jabbar, that was the master thief who took her into his group of street urchins, was dying. So while they were there, they met two of, of the current generation of Ahmed El-Jabbar's protégés, and these are two kids named Karima and Jamil. And Karima is a kind, good-hearted kid. Jamil is angry and aggressive. I should say Karima is a different Karima from Karima Shapandar, who's the Omega Sentinel. This is this is a little kid Karima who shows up only in a very limited number of stories. And Jamil, as it turns out, has latent mutant powers, and because of that, Kandra of the Externals is after him. Quick Kandra recap. Oh boy. So the Externals, of course, are a group of immortal mutants who uh, you and I, Jay, tend to not be terribly impressed with. Because they suck? Uh, For the most part. Kandra is one of them that tends to show up around New Orleans stories, or at least did. She was sort of the patron saint of the Assassins and Thieves guilds of New Orleans, and thus a big part of Gambit's past. But she also apparently hung out in Egypt um, at least long enough to be interested in taking on uh, Jamil of the Street Urchins as a protege. And making it so he would take over the Street Urchins? I think she just really likes being the power behind the throne. Like, that's her, sort of her jam. She's been around for thousands of years, and that's just where she likes to be. Or at least the power behind groups of thieves. Uh, yes, people doing illegal things. She used to follow jaywalkers around and, like, empower them with arcane energy. Now, it's actually Ahmed who wants um, Jamil to lead the thieves. Kendra has been luring him away from them, and he wants Storm to basically bring Jamil back to the light, um, get him to take over the thieves once Ahmed's gone, and yeah, be a good leader. So the heroes defeat Kendra, but Jamil goes off with her anyway to get away from a life of powerless poverty, and Ahmed's okay with this um, because he's got Karima, who turns out is just a better kid in general, he talks about how in the past he'd send Aurora off for a small treasure and she'd return with a far greater one, and this is one such circumstance, so now Karima runs the thieves and everyone lives happily ever after, and Jamil is presumably off somewhere doing evil with Kandra. Yeah, you know, shoplifting, breaking and entering, mail fraud. That brings us to X-Men number 60, Night with a story by Scott Lobdell, a script by Ralph Macchio, pencils by Cedric Nocon, inks by Chad Hunt, colors by Joe Rosas, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert DeShane. So, we've seen Cedric Nocon's work before. He did the Beast miniseries. That was the one where we really liked the way he drew Spiral's body language, like her sort of using all of her six arms very naturally. Ooh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so I just sort of, sort of thought of him as a random 90s artist, but the more I see his art, especially in these two issues, the more I like it. Like, he's he's pretty good. Uh, he's not bad. And speaking of creative teams, so this is a story featuring Kandra, featuring Karima and Jamil. It's a sequel to a story written by Howard Mackey, who we know loves Kandra. He uses her at every opportunity. And there's no Howard Mackey in sight. Do you think he felt really angry that someone was playing with his babies or just really excited that somebody other than him cared about Kandra? I would not chance a guess. Dear Howard Mackey, if you're listening, uh, let us know. Also, sorry for sometimes talking about how we don't like some of your stories. 
We love some of them, just not all of them. And I'm sure you're a lovely human being. We'd love to hang out. You're making it weird, man. Yeah, I do that. Anyway, this story opens at the Attic Greenhouse at the Xavier Institute, which, of course, is where Storm spends a lot of her time when she's not having villains fall in love with her. And amid her plant, she is pondering her history, which is, of course, a helpful recap for any readers unfamiliar with it, and her various responsibilities. And again, to talk about Nokon's art here, this greenhouse is just so lush and inviting. And Storm herself fits in, with the various folds and wrinkles of her clothing and the details of her hair also feeling very natural, very organic. Like, it's just a super appealing page of art. Alas, the mood is immediately ruined by Cyclops attacking her out of nowhere— and we know there's something off, besides you know, the basic behavior, by the fact that his speech balloons are blue. Storm is mostly ready for an attack at all times. A master thief of her level always expects an ambush. And so she uses her lightning to transform her casual outfit's unstable molecules, like her casual outfit that's basically pajamas, apparently is made of unstable molecules, into her uniform, which... I guess that's something that she used to do back in the day, like in the early Claremont run. She'd be naked because she'd be showering in a nearby hallway and just zap her costume on out of nowhere. So there is precedent. Yeah, no, that's that's totally a classic Storm move. I just like the fact that her pajamas are made of unstable molecules. Like, do they just buy that stuff in wholesale? I imagine that unstable molecules are very comfortable. Yeah, I should get some unstable molecules. Supply chain issues mean they might take a while to arrive, though. They're probably pretty expensive, too. Yeah, and I work in comics. Ah, well. Unstable molecules? In this economy? (laughs) So Storm recognizes that characteristically light blue-colored speech bubble, or, I assume, Kandra's style of speaking. And Kandra says, yeah, here's the deal. I am busting in here as your bud because you have something that I want, that belongs to me, and I want it back tonight. It is perhaps worth noting that Kendra does not actually use the phrase busting in here, although I wish she had. So after Kendra fucks off to presumably enjoy more bustin', Storm explains to the very confused Cyclops, who has no memory of this, what's up. She did indeed steal something from Kendra when she, Storm, was a kid. And she shows Scott it's a hand-sized red gem that she calls Kendra's heart which she takes out of a random treasure chest in her garden. Like, does she just have a bunch of them lined up, and the next one has a bronze sword, and one after that has an elixir? Like, what's going on here? Yes, that is exactly what she has going on. Okay, well, if I'm ever a low-level adventurer, I'm going to head up there and just take all of her stuff, because if I've learned one thing from video games, it's that villagers don't really care when you open the treasure chests in their house and steal their shit. No, they're all just full of phylacteries. She's just, she's just got all of these little lives you know, stored in chests in the room. Storm actually controls who lives and dies in the Marvel Universe. God damn, Aurora! I just thought that was Crow-T Robot. No, he just wanted it. Fair. Well, anyway, here's the deal. When she was a kid, when she was a thief working for Ahmed El-Jabbar, she was, you know, trying to steal awesome stuff. So she broke into a compound that turns out to belong to Kandra. And upon stealing this gem, doing that thing where she, like, shimmies down a rope from the skylight... Um, she triggered a trap that killed all the guards there and disintegrated the entire building, leaving only a smoking crater. Ahmed al-Jabbar was a little, uh, worried by this whole scenario. He didn't tell her what was up with the gem, but he did hold on to it until she left Cairo for, I assume, Kenya, at which point he gave it back to her. 
And here, there is an overlay panel of Storm in her original 1970s costume, which included a gem brooch that held her cape together, which I guess is implying that that gem, Candra's heart, was the one that she always had throughout the 70s until she changed outfits. Okay, that's actually kind of badass. Like, she stole this thing. All she knows about it is it's incredibly powerful and it belongs to one of her greatest enemies. And she just wears it like the fucking cloak clasp around. Like, yeah, yeah, what you gonna do, bitch? The huevos on Aurora Monroe. Right? But here's the thing. I don't think that actually is the same gem. Because way the fuck later, in Claremont's Extreme X-Men, there's this whole plotline involving a ruby from Storm's mother, which opens a portal for some reason. It's involved in that whole con storyline. And so I assume that's the one she wore because it was, like, from her mom. So I guess there are two palm-sized rubies, which is, is kind of a lot. Like, I know it's only two, but that's two more than I have. How does she know that she's grabbing the right one? Oh, right, seriously. It's like in those comedies where someone's reaching for their toothpaste, but they grab the foot the cream instead, and, and it's all gross, except uh, mystical rubies. Yeah, yeah. You really definitely don't want to lick Kendra's heart. Listeners, if you take only one lesson from this episode, don't lick Kendra's heart. You can put that with your other lesson from this podcast, which is don't masturbate with a cactus. That's how you get eye killers. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just like in X-Men Unlimited number seven, her buds will not let her go on this mission alone, at which point she just flies away while they aren't looking, since it's apparently a matter of honor. God damn it, though, Aurora, have you not learned the lesson of havoc? You're going to end up brainwashed or maybe undercover as part of a new villain group with confusing headgear. If there's anything that Storm knows, it's that she can maintain her integrity in the face of a good deal of villainy. I suppose that's true. The villainy just tends to fall in love with her, and then she just is very regal and everything's fine. Exactly. So, where Storm is headed, where she's going to meet Kandra, is the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and specifically the Egyptian temple that's reconstructed there. And sure enough, Kandra's right there, wearing that same shibari lobster outfit that we've seen her in so many times. It looks so uncomfortable! It really, really does. It looks like it looks like it's made of wicker or something. I know. And also this time, like she always had very pointy earrings that looked a little bit like chili peppers, but now they're way longer and they stick out way straighter in front of her face, so they just kind of look like an ant lion's mandibles, like she could clack them together in front of her face menacingly. Oh, that would be great. It really would. That would make me like her more. Yeah. I wish Kendra were more overtly silly. That's the thing with the externals. Like, for the most part, they take themselves really seriously. And yes, some of them have very silly appearances. See figure one, everything about Gideon. But they're just not campy enough. I mean, I don't know. Celine has her fans. Fair enough. Uh, I, I may not be one of them, but I totally respect that. But o- overall, the, the externals just don't impress me. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said they weren't campy enough. I think that is sort of the fundamental problem, that it's not only that they take themselves seriously, it's that the narrative takes them really seriously, and they need to be played the way Sinister's been in the last decade or so. Like, they need to have that camp element to be funny if they're going to be all-powerful and serious and still keep losing. Yes, exactly. Like, you can have a super badass villain if that villain is a credible threat, like... I've mentioned I've been watching through X-Men Evolution. I just got to the stuff with Apocalypse. Apocalypse is very, very impressive. That works. He's totally serious. But for these guys, for these guys that have been around for thousands of years and yet seem to lose every single fight they get in? Well, and it never even seems like they're going to win. They're not, they're not, like you said, they're not credible threats. They're just kind of there. 
and they're not very effective and they're not very stylish. And and I just I they just feel really pointless to me. That said, there is one external who is absolutely full of camp, and that, of course, is Cruel, who rules. But he's the one we see the least of, probably. Yeah, that's true. Bring back Cruel. And um, I guess we'll have to reckon with all of his genuine atrocities, but yeah, that's something we have to reckon with a lot in superhero comics. Or for now, we can just, you know, be satisfied with Sinister, who is not an external, but who is, is what we wish the externals would lean into. I mean, one thing Cruel has on Sinister, Sinister doesn't fight primarily by using two tiny skulls attached to his hair braids. Yet. Yet. Kieran Gillen, if you're listening. But anyway. So Storm shows up with the gem. She's not intending to give it to Kandra, but she's, I don't know why she even brings it. Is she's just there to taunt Kandra with it or what? But um, Kandra has a bargaining chip. Kandra has brought Karima and she's got her captive. She's got her tied up in the temple, which means Storm has to play along. At that point, Kandra villain splains. Why didn't she go after this gem earlier? Well, she only recently found out that Storm was the one who had it, because Jamil, who indeed has been on her side this whole time, has a form of telepathy where he can look into people's pasts, so suddenly it's clear. She also villain-splains, extremely unwisely, as villains do, that while externals like herself are immortal, they can't die of old age, they can be killed by a blade through the heart. So she put the essence of her heart into this gem and kept it somewhere very secure, albeit not secure enough to keep it from Aurora. So, uh, A, way to just tell Storm your weakness right there, and B, so Kandra's basically a lich from Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, like you said, this is her phylactery. Yep. Huh, okay, okay. Uh, phylacteries are interesting. They're actually a, um, Hasidic Jewish prayer tool. Like, they're actually used by Hasidic Jews in prayer. They're like this little box with a long leather wrap that you wrap around, uh, your arm in a certain way. And I'm not nearly an observant enough, uh, background Jew person to know the details. But, um, that's always struck me as a little strange, that the undead D&D monster took a Jewish prayer tool. That seems like a worrisome decision, but I don't know. It may be a piece of terminology with multiple roots and meanings. Obviously, it's contextually very different in those two circumstances. That's true. I mean, when I got bar mitzvahed, as far as I know, my rabbi wasn't a lich, but I guess he also wasn't orthodox, so uh, I don't know. So I actually just looked this up, and the the original context is, of course, the Jewish context. They contain Torah verses. Um, and the idea of a phylactery as an object into which a lich um, places part of its soul— originates with Dungeons and Dragons and has since become pretty much ubiquitous in fantasy fiction. Fascinating. I want to talk to the person who came up with that, and and I have some questions. Yeah, same. Anyway, after a brief forced flashback from Jamil, there's a fight, but let's talk about this flashback. Jamil, of course, can go into people's pasts, and apparently that includes projecting visions of those pasts onto those people. And this vision is a part of Storm's history from her youth of her kissing a young T'Challa. You know, the guy that would become Black Panther. And his teeny mustache. Yeah, I wasn't really sure if that was an actual teeny mustache or just shading, but I choose to assume it was indeed a teeny mustache, and that was just one of the many reasons he was so suited to lead a nation. Now, this is a flashback to a story originally from Marvel Team-Up number 100, and that's the issue that would be later spun out into the storyline about Storm's marriage to T'Challa. Yeah, and as I recall, that was actually a Claremont story. I believe so. 
Well, while Storm is distracted by this little bit of continuity that will become a way bigger deal later, Jameel just yoinks the stone. And being Jameel, being a power-hungry jerk, I should point out that Jameel has, like, no redeeming characteristics. He's just awful. He decides to take the stone for himself and, I don't know, be more powerful and use that to, like, amplify his jerk energy. But it's not actually Jameel who's taking the stone because his word balloons have changed as well. The Shadow King has been controlling him this entire time and is now in possession of all of Kandra's external power. Aw, crap. Except that shouldn't be possible, because as far as we know, the Shadow King died in the Muir Island saga. That's very true. He is thoroughly dead at this point. I mean, of course he's going to come back a billion times because it's comics, but at this point, this is a surprise. I realized as I was saying the the Shadow King died in the Muir Island saga that... If you're just tuning in for this episode and you're not familiar with X-Men, I could have said pretty much anything there. Just started making stuff up. Oh yeah, the Shadow King died in the Muir Island saga after he had a bowling game with Professor Xavier on the astral plane, and each bowling pin was one of the X-Men or one of the Shadow King's own manipulated puppets, and the way that they fell and the 7-10 split that they ended up with meant that Xavier won and Amal Farouk was forever destroyed. Well, let us follow that shock and horror into X-Men number 61, Bolt. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled once again by Cedric Nocon, inked by Chad Hunt and Mike Miller, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and once again, Albert DeShane. And we open with this phenomenal two-page spread of Aurora being all regally zappy, wreathed in electricity with dark clouds coming in from the edges of the panel, and Kandra fallen in confusion and despair in front of her, Jameel hovering in this Kirby crackled Shadow King face explosion, all in these ancient ruins, which are inside a museum, so I guess it's kind of like a soundstage, but it looks really cool. Like, Cedric Nocon went from an artist that I had no opinions about at all to one that I am really starting to like, and I should learn more about him. There's a big fight, but moments after Storm freezes Jamil in a snowstorm, Juggernaut attacks out of nowhere. Huh. Okay. But that, as it turns out, is a fake out, and Storm realizes that no, both the Shadow King and Juggernaut were actually just Jamil. They were, they were, some, somehow he, his, his powers were causing him to manifest as those personas. Kandra takes this opportunity, as Aurora is distracted by expositing, to kick Storm in the face, saying that Kandra's own pain at being apart from the gem and vulnerable for so long was a thousand times worse. So, I guess, Kandra's pain was the equivalent of 1,000 kicks to the face. Jay, do you remember from that old book, Science Made Stupid, when it talked about how a millihelen was the amount of beauty- The amount of beauty necessary to launch one ship, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, anyway, apparently kicks to the face is a unit of pain. Um, next time you go to the doctor, uh, you know, if they're asking how you're feeling, just tell them, I don't know, about three kicks to the face. Seems reasonable. But the Juggernaut isn't the last unexpected arrival, because suddenly Cable is there and, and manages to zap Kandra with the gem's power. So that means that Kandra's not behind this, because she just got attacked, and Jamil seems not to be, because everything is so inconsistent. And Storm realizes, well, that just leaves one possible person, Karima and grabs Karima, unties her, and flies her far, far away. Storm explains. In your zeal, you did not realize that the true mutant was Karima, capable of giving both form and function to desires pulled from the minds of others. She projected your desire to find the gem onto Jamil, who was her own desire for companionship. 
Okay, let's break this down. So as Storm explains this to Kandra, I feel like we need to explain it to ourselves and to the listeners. Because in X-Men Unlimited number 7, Jamil was a jerk, but he was just, like, a dude. He was just another member of the street urchins. But apparently Karima manifested him out of her desire for friendship or a leader or an older brother. And unfortunately, I guess, lost control of him at some point. And didn't even realize that's what she was doing. Karima doesn't even know that she's a mutant. This is a big deal. I mean, this power obviously is very reminiscent of Mirage's power. Right, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, like to manifest people's greatest desires or fears or whatever. But Karima kept this person that she manifested, Jamil, active for what I assume are years. Like, even while she was asleep, even while she wasn't nearby. Like, she just brought a person into the world out of her own desires or the expectations of people around her, and that person has been, like, a full person. That's that's incredible. That's wild, and it's also ethically complicated in ways that this issue definitely doesn't touch. For real, yeah. Like, this almost seems on the same level of uh, the discussions of the Krakoan era of, can you resurrect somebody if you're not absolutely positive that they're not still alive? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, speaking of, there's a really cool uh, story in X-Men Unlimited right now that kind of grapples with that that's all about Maggot, the long-forgotten Maggot. So if you have Marvel Unlimited, uh, you should read that. It's fascinating. Cool. Yeah. So amid these retcons and revelations, Storm just tosses the gem toward Kandra, and then with his Zark, the gem explodes because the X-Men finally have caught up with their bud. And I guess Storm knew that they were right there and just wanted to be really mean? I mean, she knows that destroying the gem will kill Kandra, so why did she just give Kandra that last little bit of hope right before Cyclops murdered Kandra, which doesn't seem like a Cyclops-like thing to do? Like, geez, X-Men, you're, you're supposed to be heroes. Like, I know Kandra's terrible, but, but that's just awful. So does that kill Kandra, or does it just render her mortal? You know, it's unclear, and Kandra's just not really in the comic after that so um i mean we know Kandra comes back but again this is comics everybody comes back most of the externals are dead having recently been killed by Celine. most of them will be back so uh unclear but again that's cold aurora it really really is wow but that means the good guys win uh jameel no longer exists now that karima has demanifested him Kandra is i guess dead and so Storm takes Karima home, back to the street urchins, to lead them nobly, and also to never be mentioned again. Karima is never mentioned again, despite those powers, despite being a character that Storm is pretty close to. So, uh, Howard Mackey, I'm glad your pet characters got brought back for a little, but it was only a little. Has she shown up on Krakoa? Uh, no, Karima's only appearances are X-Men Unlimited 7, and then X-Men 60 and 61, which we just covered. That's it. Wow. I mean, that being said, somebody could bring her back, and I guess could even bring back Jamil. I guess. That would be an interesting dynamic to play with on the island. It totally would. I think Kandra's Heartstone does come back, though. Eh, it's a whole thing. Now, there's there's a bit of B-plot in each of these issues. Is that worth touching on? Uh, we can at least mention it. I mean, it's nice to at least remember that these issues aren't just this story that is so removed from everything else. Right, so in X-Men 60, we've got um, Sam Guthrie checking in with Jean Grey about his infiltration of the Great and Creed campaign, and in this case, the Great and Creed funeral. Yeah, Sam is really bummed that even though Great and Creed was awful, he couldn't protect him, and even more bummed that 
as he tried to get to know Graydon Creed, tried to get to know the man behind the hate, all there was was hate. And I can totally see that being the thing that almost breaks Sam Guthrie. He's so eager to find the goodness and humanity in everybody, and there just wasn't any with Creed. He was as thinly characterized within continuity as he was in the comics. <laughs> Pretty much. And in X-Men 61, we check in with some characters we haven't seen much of lately, namely Archangel and Psylocke. Right, so Psylocke recently was nearly killed and was brought back to life by a mystical force called the Crimson Dawn. And apparently, part of the price of that is having a bunch of goddamn ninjas show up and try to kill her. These are undercloaks? Who are these sort of energy ninjas from the Crimson Dawn dimension? They're like made of red shadow and ninja outfits, and, and they're, they're pretty cool looking. Yeah, they're, they're definitely rad. Archangel realizes that there's a fight going on in the apartment that he and Psylocke are currently sharing, so he does what he always does and just takes off his shirt and flies as quickly as he can. Um, but then when he gets there, she's just fine. Uh, and we have seen Psylocke get weirder and weirder since the Crimson Dawn. This is all going to come to play in the Archangel and Psylocke Crimson Dawn miniseries coming up. We'll get to that. I haven't read it. I have no idea if it's good. I just know that the undercloaks look really cool. What we have read is X-Men Unlimited number 14, Innocence Lost. It's written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Jim Chung, inked by Andrew Papoy, colored by Kevin Summers, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and, again, Albert Deshane. Oh man, this art. I really like Jim Chung's style. It's kind of like a less bizarre Chris Bocello, maybe a little bit of Joe Matarera mixed in. But uh, it's it's good. It's very expressive. It's uh, very emotive. It's got that kind of manga-tacular vibe that Matarera does and that surreality that Bocello has, but a little bit uh, less so. And he's actually going to do a big run of X-Force that we'll be getting to pretty soon. He also drew the first run of Young Avengers, which I remember liking. Yeah, yeah, likewise. And he's a very, very good choice for this particular story as well, because he's so expressive, and because this is, among other things, a Moppet story. Moppets! I love Moppets! Now, this story is also set in the alternate universe where Edna and Norton McCoy live in Indiana instead of upstate New York, which really bothers me, probably more than it reasonably should. It, it seems to. I remember, like, when we were checking in about the content we were covering before the episode, like, you were... You were kind of upset about this. Like, it had been really firmly established and not too far in the past, because remember, Dark Beast had gone to their farm to presumably to kill them, but had decided not to, remember? Yeah, well, maybe they got so freaked out that they moved to Indiana and then rewrote history so that they'd always lived there. Yeah, because it's, it's not that they've moved there. This is where Hank grew up in context of this story. And again, I just, man, it's just... One of those things that I, I feel like you should know if you're going to be writing a McCoy story. Well, that said, it is pretty charming, and these may be my favorite portrayals of Beast's parents and Beast's home life, so I, I can't be too mad about it. This is also, by the way, the alternate universe where Indiana is where you go on vacation if you want to hang out somewhere where you don't have to worry about being different. I mean, I think that was specifically the McCoy's farm, not necessarily the surrounding areas. Fair enough. So... Uh, both of these things are lies, obviously. But um, we've got a handful of X-Men, Beast, Storm, and Gambit, plus the Moppet Squad, on vacation in Dunphy, Illinois. And there we've got two plot lines. Uh, one is the local bigots, the other is Franklin Richards versus Joseph. Okay, so, Jay, I know you and I very much know who the Moppet Squad are, but for any listeners unfortunate enough to not yet be familiar... 
All right, so the Moppet Squad is a trio of, at this point, mutants, although in one case that will be retconned later, who are perpetually like six years old and adorable. One of them is Franklin Richards. That is the son of the currently dead Sue Storm and Reed Richards. I guess Sue and Reed Richards. Um, They died during Onslaught, and since then, Franklin has been a ward of specifically Generation X, or the the new Xavier School. Why he's off with the X-Men at this point, along with Artie and Leech, who normally also live at the new Xavier School, I don't know, and it's never really established. Leech is a former Morlock who was adopted um, by, I believe, X-Factor following the Mutant Massacre. Artie is Artie Maddox. He's the son of Beast's former boss who was rescued from said former boss again early in the X-Factor days. And Artie and Leech are fast friends and have been from the start and quickly adopted Franklin into their now trio when he showed up. As far as powers, Franklin is kind of omnipotent. He can basically just do whatever, up to and including rewriting reality. Leech cancels out the powers of any super beings that he's close to. He's getting better at controlling that. And Artie can create images of whatever he's thinking about. He doesn't speak, so that's how he communicates. Also, Leech is green and Artie is pink, and that just makes them even cuter. Artie also has some low-key telepathy, I believe. I think so, yeah. I think that's how he can project those visual images. So, everyone is having a fine time in Dunphy. Storm is flying around. Gambit is eating a lot of pancakes. The McCoy's breakfast machine, as portrayed in previous issues, is nowhere to be found. Oh, right! They had the big Rube Goldberg-esque breakfast machine when Dark Beast visited the farm, and it was so exciting, and it just looked like it took up so much space to do something so basic. I loved it. Gambit is also extremely, extremely excited about the prospect of tractor rides when Norton McCoy offers them, which kind of makes me wonder if Gambit thinks that tractor ride is a euphemism for something else. (laughs) I mean, I know what mustache ride is a euphemism for. Tractor ride? I'm gonna have to think about that. But this is just all so charming. Some of that's the writing, some of that's the art. Like, there's this gorgeous, gorgeous panel of Storm flying, just wearing overalls and a t-shirt, barefoot, and there's like there's a bunch of birds flying with her, and Dawn is breaking over the golden horizon in front of all these fields stretching out at this angle below. It's just, it just looks so idyllic and peaceful. And Edna and Norton are just wonderful. Like, Edna's just so excited to get to cook for people and to get to know all these different people. And Norton's got this big grin and this silly little mustache, and he's so excited to offer the kids a tractor ride, which uh, I assume he just means tractor ride, but who can say? And, like, the parents have— I mean, they ride on a tractor later, so presumably. I guess it's just Gambit that's confused. And there's a picture of Beast in his blue furry form, smiling real big, prominently displayed in their house. Like, they just love their son. They have no issue at all with him being a mutant or with his friends being mutants. And they're like, hey, if you're friends with our son, you are family. We love you so much. And we're just going to be super happy and welcoming. It actually reminds me a lot of Superman taking the Martian Manhunter back to the Kent farm in that Christmas episode of the Justice League cartoon. Comfort and joy, yeah. Yeah, it's just so warm. So this hasn't always been the case with the McCoys. It's, they've, they've had some rough patches with, with Hank, including an era when Professor Xavier completely deleted him from their memories. But obviously they've come around since. God damn it, Chuck. Alas, things at the local bar are nowhere near so idyllic. There, some guy named Buck is having feelings. He has had a rough run of it. He'd gotten a really good job answering phones at the Creed 
campaign headquarters, but then he lost that when Creed was assassinated, and his wife left him for a mutant heavily implied to have a giant dick. Yeah, that that part was was weird, but uh, that is indeed what it implies. Now, Buck is mostly upset, but his buddy Grange is angry. His buddy Grange connects all of this to the fact that Hank McCoy is back in town. Hank McCoy, who stole his position on the high school football team, and Hank has brought some of his freak friends with him, and Grange decides that they should let off some steam mob style. And, yeah, they uh, manage to kidnap all the kids, and when Storm flies looking for them, they shoot her out of the sky. Not fatally, but... They just shot a lady that they didn't know. That's that's quite rude. And having managed to entrap Artie and Leech, they use the kids to lure and entrap Hank himself. And we hear a little bit uh, of their drunken ramblings about where their bigotry comes from. There's one part that genuinely kind of disturbs me where one of the mob members theorizes that the mutants are there to take their women and cut humanity off at its roots, meaning like, I guess breed with them so none of the kids are human which oh man with some of the current violent white supremacist conspiracies that are uh that are becoming so prominent and and uh known right now that is rough to read not in a bad way like i'm glad that x-men addresses this kind of thing but woof in all uh dubious fairness that specific white supremacist rhetoric has been around for centuries oh like, yeah there absolutely. is nothing nothing new about that Yep, just new and exciting flavors manifesting in new and exciting ways. But uh, yes, this mob is terrible. They are just very bad people. They're also very drunk. And Norton, Storm, and Gambit show up on the tractor, and there's a whole bunch of, we've got you, no, we've got you, as various people attack and aim guns at each other. Norton then gives the mob no end of hell about how most of them are also a little different in some way. Yeah, it's sort of his version of the first they came for speech, just talking about how, you know, if we're going after people who are different, then when do we stop? And he manages to do it, even using some very specific examples, without even once using the N-word. So he's doing better than Kitty Pride did that one time. Good job, Norton McCoy. And he manages to keep this up until the cops appear, because Buck slipped away and called them once he finally concluded that lynching is not cool. Well done, Buck. And I like this. I like that there is somebody who does feel a lot of resentment toward mutants, who blames a lot of his own problems on them, but when he actually thinks about it, realizes, like, whoa, we we need to step this back. Like, there's being angry, and then there's doing this horrible, horrible stuff where we're talking about murdering children. Yep. that That's a really, really important line to be able to draw. And, you know, it's nice to see. That's one of the reasons that despite the horrible bigotry in this issue, this issue kind of feels like a warm hug. Like, it is a very comforting issue. I don't know if I'd go with warm hug, at least for this part. But it's 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 got the saving grace of one of the original members of the mob being the person who, who draws the line and says this has gone too far, which is always the kind of thing that you wish happens in real life and it's its own sort of wish fulfillment fantasy in a comic book. Between that and Edna Norton being basically the perfect parents. Now, speaking of perfect parents, Franklin wakes up from a nightmare about Onslaught and his own missing parents, in which he realizes that Onslaught behind his helmet had Joseph's face. So let's talk a little bit about this. The heroes who are not X-Men, basically the heroes who needed to have a boost in the sales of their books and so got new number ones in an alternate universe— were all killed at the end of the Onslaught crossover. The Fantastic Four, the Avengers, some other folks, not all of them, but, like, a lot of them, very much including the Fantastic Four, and thus Franklin's parents. Apparently killed. 
apparently killed. We'll find out that was more complicated. Franklin sort of stuck them in a pocket dimension inside a little blue bouncy ball. It was a whole thing. But Franklin is understandably pretty traumatized by this. Like, his parents were amazing. He was super close to them. They were kind of his world. As for Joseph, Joseph is, as far as we know at this point in continuity, a de-aged version of Magneto that doesn't remember any of Magneto's crimes. And Magneto's hate, Magneto's evil, as personified by a little goblin, also a whole thing, was part of what created the onslaught entity that killed Reed and Sue. Ironically, I would say Magneto is less responsible for onslaught than Xavier, because the 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 whole goblin getting sucked into Xavier's mind thing like that was that was the product of Xavier wiping Magneto's mind and Xavier's was the actual consciousness and intelligence behind onslaught i agree but i also see why franklin wouldn't see it that way because charles xavier has always been extremely kind to him and the good part of xavier was right there by franklin's side when he was trapped inside onslaught and there's also the fact that onslaught basically looks like a big robot magneto Yeah, true. Now, fortunately, when Franklin wakes wakes up from his nightmare, Artie and Leech, in matching nightshirts and nightcaps, of course, are there to comfort him. This part, of course, takes place before the kidnapping by bigots. These stories intersect. We're just covering them one at a time to uh, be a little clearer. It also takes place before the tractor ride. Oh, man, there's this one scene where Franklin and Artie and Leech are trying to bury a distributor cap as, like, a little game they're playing— And Franklin actually has his own reason for doing so. We'll get to that in a moment. But Artie is convinced, based on the image he telepathically projects, that if they plant a distributor cap, they'll get a tractor tree, like a tree that grows tractors. I love Artie so much. He's a good kid. He's wrong, but he's a good kid. Sometimes those two things overlap. Unfortunately, Artie and Leech shortly thereafter get kidnapped, leaving Franklin alone with a whole lot of feelings. And he subconsciously manages to summon Joseph to Dunphy, and he demands that Joseph undo what Onslaught did and give back Franklin's parents. See, my interpretation was that he had actually been planning to lure Joseph here, sort of using that buried metal distributor cap as almost some kind of an alchemical tool to draw Joseph in through his powers. He doesn't seem too surprised when Joseph shows up. Interesting. I hadn't made that connection. Not sure. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a rough scene. Yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking, and it really drives home just how scary the combination is of that much power and a bereaved six-year-old. And Joseph, for his part, is apologetic but firm. You think I can help you, Franklin. Even believe I can return your loved ones to you because you think I'm to blame for their passing. Responsibility for Magneto's role in the onslaught, in the very birth of those deaths, of so many deaths, drops squarely on my shoulders now? You are not the only one to feel this way. I promise you that. You may even be right, all of you, for all I know, for all I've tried to discover about my past. But I cannot fathom what you expect me to do about it now. Joseph made some valid points. Yeah. But, uh, Franklin, I mean, he's a little kid, and this kind of nuance, especially in the face of so much pain, that's not really something he can understand or handle. Franklin is 
just escalating and escalating into some kind of explosion until Gambit comes and is actually able to talk him down by basically saying, your parents are will always exist inside your mind. It's okay, kiddo. He doesn't know how correct that is um, at this point. But um, Beast also comes back with Artie and Leech, and Leech is, is there in time for to help Franklin really power down. Yeah, because even as Franklin emotionally calms down, that power storm, which it looks like is going to kill everyone around him, is is still raging, and Franklin's just scared at this point. And Leech's depowering aura just fixes it all, because these Moppets are buds, and buds protect each other, especially when they're Moppety. I love these kids so much. And the issue ends with the Nortons welcoming Joseph to their farm. Because they're great and love all of Beast's friends. So, yeah, this is a fun one. I wouldn't call it necessarily continuity critical. I mean, we've certainly addressed Franklin's sadness and rage, his parents' passing, and other stories. But uh, I like this one. Yeah, it's a nice story. It's not what I would categorize as essential, but it's, it's a pleasant read. And with that, you've got questions. Thank you, Bear asks on Twitter. Thank you, Bear. In the Marvel multiverse, have there been any mutants that had completely different powers than their 616 counterparts? Not that we've been able to find in the comics. The notable exception is the movies, where, for instance, Kitty Pride had what was originally Rachel Summers' power of being able to project someone's consciousness backwards in time. Or there was that thing with Toad's acid spit and tongue, which I believe weren't really retconned into the comics post-movies until Fabian Essiez's X-Men Forever miniseries. And this makes sense. I mean, if you're adopting characters to another medium, like, you know, you might want to change it. They're doing that with Ms. Marvel in the upcoming Ms. Marvel show that will have already premiered by the time this episode releases. I have no idea if that's going to be good or not. I'm terrified, but excited. We've seen powers have minor variations between universes, too. So, for instance, there are timelines, there are universes in which Cyclops' optic blasts do generate heat. Uh, yeah, specifically Earth 11052, which is X-Men Evolution, although they only do it sometimes in there, and Earth 13122, which is the universe in which the Lego Marvel games take place. I looked those up. Yeah, there's and and within the comics, there's, again, a lot of subtle variation. There are, you know, Mimic from the Exiles can only use five powers at once until he gets infected by the Brood, and Mimic from 616 doesn't have a limit. But yeah, that stuff's far from completely different. If we're, talk- if we're talking about mutants that just have utterly unrelated power sets, very few. That said, uh, it's a hard question to Google, and we may be missing something. So listeners, if you can think of any examples, we'd be fascinated to hear those. There are definitely characters who have significantly different powers that aren't natural mutations. So for example, there's a universe where magic is the Sorcerer Supreme. There's you know the timeline where Beast has primarily magical powers instead of scientific ones, etc. Exactly, yeah. DJ Matt asks on Twitter, who's your favorite power couple, thruple, etc.? Hey, Matt, we know that guy. He produces this show. So, immediately, I go to Kelly Thompson doing the impossible and turning me into a gigantic rogue-slash-gambit fan. Like, In Kelly Thompson's version, Gambit thinks Rogue is the coolest lady ever and wants everybody to know it, and he isn't at all intimidated by that. I feel weird about the term wife guy, but it kind of fits. Like, even his recent resentment about the relationship in Knights of X is just based on not seeing her as much as he would like to, which, as reasons for marital strife go, is like a pretty mild and okay one. 
It actually kind of reminds me of how Marjorie Liu in the X-23 series made me like Gambit more by having him be an awesome uncle figure to her. I guess Gambit just needed some rehabilitation. No, Gambit needs to be written by women. That's That's been firmly established over history and time. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the thing. And Teeny Howard is writing Excalibur these days. Well, Knights of X right now, so there you go. As far as poly relationships in X-Men go, I mean... I do love Scott and Jean and Logan finally canonically being together as some kind of triad, even if we don't know the exact configuration. It's wonderful. It's about damn time. I always hated that stupid rivalry, and this is way better for the story. That said, I do have a couple complaints. Uh, First, it would be nice if the comics could actually talk about this whole thing rather than just hinting at it so hard that it's obvious and clearly intended. It would be nice just to be explicit. Yeah, exactly. And also... I wish that Emma Frost was tangentially involved in that relationship too, like House of X was briefly hinting, but it seems like the comics have shied away from it since then, and she's outside that whole thing. It's just Scott and Jean and Logan. Yeah, like you, I really, really wish that Emma were more visibly and centrally involved in that. Um, I I feel like a lot of Cyclops fans have strong preferences in terms of like Scott and Jean versus Scott and Emma, and I really like both relationships for really different reasons, and um, I really wish that there'd been more of an exploration of a Scott and Jean and Emma dynamic, because I think it could have worked out really interestingly. Yeah, exactly. Whether that's a triangle or a V or, you know, one that turns into the other, like, there's good story potential there. You know, they're not, I I don't know to what extent they're a power couple, but I really liked Colossus and Domino together. Oh, they were fun. They were such an unlikely pairing in Dennis Hopeless's um, Cable and X-Force, and yet they worked. They, I think, really just uh, they activated facets of one another that didn't often get a chance to exist. They were so different that they just brought out such interesting new things in each other. I loved that. There's a special place in my heart for Hulkling and Wiccan, for Richter and Shatterstar, for Angela and Sarah. I should specify, that's Angela and Sarah from the Angela Asgard's Assassin and related books. I I know that they both have super generic names, but they're great. And of course, Cypher and Warlock, we don't know exactly what their relationship is. It's ambiguous. That's one of the things I like about it. Whether or not they're a romantic power couple, they're a power couple. Oh, very much so. I mean, when we're going to power couples, I will always go back to Storm and Yukio, Storm and Callisto, Storm and Jean, Storm and all the ladies, basically. As all the male villains of the Marvel Universe sob simultaneously. And, you know, Spider-Man, Iceman, and Firestar from the old 70s Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon that I grew up on, they are totally a triad, and you will not change my mind. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, and this time the mic goes to, whoa, ZZ105. You've been listening to four straight hours of Crystal Singing Bowls here on ZZ105. Today's Ambient Sounds Afternoon are brought to you by grants from the Frost Foundation for Cultural Enrichment, along with the Drew Winterberg and Ken Fries Charitable Trust and the generous support of listeners like you. Next, tune in for music to come down gently from mushrooms, only on ZZ105. But first, the microphone goes to our one and only, Kendra. The loss of Karima and Jamil's street urchins of Cairo is but a small setback for one with a lifespan as endless as mine. 
But as Gambit and Belladonna's Thieves and Assassin Guilds of New Orleans are also now denied me, the lack of power in this stage of my long life is palpable. I exist to be the power behind the finest of thrones. And thus... Ben Martin? Ben Martin, what a pleasure it is to meet one so sweet to behold as yourself. In you I sense one long denied the power you deserve, the authority you have earned. With the mystical might I can grant you, you can rule with an iron fist over your... book club. That's... that's the only organization you're part of. A book club. Hmm, I'll, uh... my people will call you, Ben. Patrick Wheeler, in you I sense a kindred spirit, one with patience, yes, but with a quietly burning ambition that shall lead you to greatness. I shall infuse you with raw energy that shall give you the power to force your will upon all those who surround you in your... your weekly community trash pickup group. I mean, that's, that's commendable, I guess, but you know what? Fuck it. Fine. Let us magically take over your weekly community trash pickup group. <sighs> and with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode along with original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's Guns, Glory, and the Goddess of Death. As we begin John Francis Moore's run of X-Force. X-Force.